Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keen. Mr. Gurr, off, off. We are honored to have Naira Chayich with us from London. We'll get to her uh, in a moment. Thrilled to have Naira Chayich with us to uh, distill some of the debates Thrilled to going be here, Tom. Well, wonderful to have you. And, of course, it was really something to see Prime Minister May Naira speaking on the Queen Elizabeth II. I guess that's what you call that ginormous aircraft carrier. It's Portsmouth. <laughs> Am I pronouncing it right? <laughs> you are Portsmouth? pronouncing. You absolutely are yeah. pronouncing it right, Tom. And over here in the yeah. UK, I mean, focus is turning to these position papers that the UK government is putting forward in terms of what it wants from Brexit. Of course, what it wants and what it gets, two very different things. I I know that because I (laughs) I read my Patrick O'Brien a long time ago. He is my most important guest of the morning in the news flow. has been extraordinary. Greg Vallier uh, joined us earlier, I should say, from Europe. Mr. Vallier looks for resignations before Thanksgiving, including General Kelly. Greg Vallier looking for the president to possibly poll under 30%. Mike Allen in Axios on Gary Cohn standing behind the president in that marble atrium yesterday. Quote, we're told Cohn was somewhere between appalled and furious. He is not appalled and furious. When you grow up in Patterson, New Jersey, you've seen it all. Bill Pascal joins us. He is the ninth uh, congressional district congressman, but that's not accurate. There's been redistricting in that. Was it your grandparents that came through Ellis Island? That is correct. It's a spiritual place. My, Very my, spiritual. My, my grandparents, eight generations back, came in handcuffs from a place called Scotland. This was a few uh, years ago. Uh, the synthesis that you have is original here because let us explain to our global audience that Patterson, New Jersey, is everything white supremacists and nationals are afraid of. Why should they not be afraid of the ethnic mix of the 9th Congressional District? Because I believe that this is the very soul of America. Uh, Each group has had a difficult time, as I've said before, to getting to the dining room table. Uh, And difficulties are one thing, but they've always been able to reach it. I don't care what the group is. I think this is important. When I was mayor of Patterson, a few moons ago, uh, I enjoyed getting up in the morning and not only thinking about the agenda for the day, but I thought about how am I going to get people to work with each other, with 62 different ethnic groups. And major problems, and city mayors will tell you this, problems within those groups because there are diversity within each group. This is what make America. You can't stop this. You can't put up a wall to stop it. You can't put a, a, a weapon out in front of you to stop it. This is America. I put out a photo of 1920s Ku Klux Klan, and thank you, Joshua Rothman of University of Alabama, for being with us on Monday, uh, and true expert on this, someone with fact-based knowledge of these, these American hatreds and tensions. And I put that photo out, and it was about Italians, when did the Italians not become the hated ones? Well, we got someone else to hate, and that's the way it works, Tom, and that's the way it works. And now I, I get after my Italian feet because I'm very, very deep involved in Italian history and the Italian immigrants that came to this country. And I tell the Italians, you know, 
you're turning your nose sometimes at certain people. Do you remember what happened yeah. when we first got here? Do you know what happened to your grandparents, your uncles, and your aunts, how they were turned away? Yeah. They weren't good enough? We can't accept that to anybody. Everybody's welcome. They come in here in an orderly, lawful fashion. We yeah. should greet them. This is what the basis, the nucleus of the nation is. If you're joining us now uh, worldwide and across this nation, Bill Pascrell with us. He is the ninth uh, congressional district congressman. Uh, and I, let me just cut it short. He is the congressman from Patterson, New Jersey. Let me bring in Naira Chayich in London. Naira? Tom and Congressman Pascrell, uh, really honored to speak to you. Uh, just to let you know where I'm coming from as we're talking uh, about uh, immigration here. I did come to the UK back in 92, not just as an immigrant, but a refugee from Sarajevo yeah. in Bosnia. So I'm very familiar um, with, um, you know, that, that side of things. But also I spent a year actually in Virginia after school and before starting university at a university there. So I'm somewhat familiar with how things uh, uh, felt in that state. I do remember well uh, in the canteen of the university at the time that even though there was never sort of any uh, sense of threat in terms of, um, <clears throat> you know, the sort of racial integration, the African-Americans would sit separately in the canteen. Now, obviously, uh, the district where you are very different to that, but we are talking here about Charlottesville. In a state like Virginia, how easy is it going to be to actually yeah. reverse what we've seen over the past few And, and that few was days. so elegantly said by Nehra. Let me cut to the American directness. How do we make parts of this nation like New Jersey? Oh, we can't back off. We can't. We must insist that this is a land of opportunity for all. And we're not saying that we open up our borders. And, you know, Europe's having problems with immigrants coming in and refugees. We understand that. But we're not going to stop being who we are and because of non-facts. Mm. And we blame immigrants for <clears throat> loss of jobs. That is absolutely right. not proven by anybody. Uh, we blame anybody for any of our problems, right. crime problems. And you know what? When people were dying in the streets of Patterson in the 1950s and 60s on heroin, eh, you know, those people don't know what they're doing anyway. Now that suburban kids are dying on opiates, it's a whole different story. Now we got hope. We got programs for everybody. I support okay. those programs. I want to run point on those programs. We are all equal. Period. I want to talk about Elaine Chao standing behind the president yesterday. In full yes. disclosure, folks, Secretary Chao and I know each other fairly well. She's been very kind. It's to ironic one of my because that's children. what I, who I was watching. During you were watching her like exactly. I was watching her, it's, and you were watching her for a reason. Well, no, but she come on. She came off the boat. Let's right. speak, from Taiwan. Right. She grew up outside L.A. Right. Very basic, very simple. What do you need to see from the Republicans, the public servants like Secretary Chao? Is Greg? Villiers says, when do they start re resigning? Is that what moderates need to see? Yeah, and, and you're torn between uh, loyalty to your president, which you should have, but there's a point beyond which the president goes. You got to make decisions for yourself. You got to stand up, resign, or speak out privately to him. If you continue to do this, I'm out of here. You're going to get somebody else to take my place. He's got to understand that this is not his business. His, his, his work is being president of the United States. He never made that transition 
from his job beforehand to the presidency of the United States. He is, yeah. you know, he's almost Cuba. like Cornelius yeah. Vanderbilt. Cornelius Vanderbilt said very specifically, uh, you know, the law, I'm, I have okay. the power. We could go for hours with you this morning, Congressman. We're going to run out of time here. I'm so sorry for that. Where's the Barber B. Connable? Barber B. Connable of Western New York sat Richard Nixon down and said, enough. Right. We're just not to that stage yet. Are we're, we? not, no, we're not to that stage yet, and most Republicans are still afraid. On Sunday, uh, if I go to Mass, I hopefully try to do that every mm-hmm. week, you hear uh, our, the, the, the folks saying, be not afraid. What are they afraid of? This is America. If you can't do it here, mm-hmm. go to Russia. Go to China then. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because yeah. you know you have a limited amount of freedom here or because we can express ourselves. This is what makes us the greatest country mm-hmm. in the world. And yet we diminish ourselves mm-hmm. when we try to categorize and say, no, these people can't be allowed in. I was very angry uh, when the president said there'll be no uh, refugees from X amount of countries, no Muslims are allowed. Are we kidding ourselves? That's, that's something from the 18th century. We're living in a 21st century now. Do we have any problems? No. Of course we have problems, and there'll always be problems. We need to stand up to it. We're never yeah. going to have a seamless system. Congressman, thank you so much. Bill Pescrell with us, an important conversation after the emotion that we saw yesterday. A particular thank you. And she will continue with us, Neira Chayich in London, talking there about her first days in uh, the United Kingdom. Neira Chayich in London. I'm Tom Keene. Uh, in where am I? I'm in New York. My head is spinning, folks, after the last six, seven uh, days. We're going to try to digress for a moment. We will return to uh, the emotion and the debate of what we're seeing in our political economics. But right now, someone that writes incredibly thoughtful notes synthesizing our macro uh, view on investment, on finance, and economics. Sebastian Galley is at Deutsche Bank. Sebastian, you have an optimistic view on the American economy, and you've just written a thoughtful piece on this overused, dreaded word, innovation. What is innovation? Innovation is the ability to create new products. It's uh, either because you're reacting to your competitors or simply because you are innovating yourself. And there are two types of innovations, one which is what we call breakthrough, which is very rare. You break the mold in a sense. And the most of the innovation, though, is more incremental. So you change small stuff, you change the coffee cup, you change the way people behave a little bit, but you don't change them on the very so, large structure. So Nair, if I change my bow tie, that's incremental innovation. <laughs> that's- Sebastian, um, this all as well, uh, you argue in your piece, depends on where we are in the cycle. Are American companies innovating enough given where we are in the business cycle? The answer is probably no. Uh, the, it looks like the funding simply for people who actually take a lot of risk is not that available. So you have the Elon Musk of the world, which are a bit uh, the exception in the system. It looks like the broad set of people who would uh, take more risk and try to push new products, which are completely new, are uh, unfortunately not uh, getting through and getting enough funding at this point in time. The market is very risk of appetite full. It loves to, to take risk, but it actually, if you go down to private equities, it probably is actually far more risk averse uh, than it should be at this point in time. 
Right. And how is this then feeding through to the productivity issue? Well, you have two two things you have to look at. The people who actually provide productivity through innovations are mature sectors. You can think of a, a company like uh, Heinz Ketchup, for example, without uh, knowing exactly what they do. Um, they would basically try to innovate, try to reduce their costs and try to create demand for new products that they, uh, they do. And that ends up basically feeding productivity. Then you have uh, companies which are high added value products. They basically create a new Apple or a new iPhone, which is not necessarily a breakthrough in any way, shape or form, might be. Uh, but in terms of productivity, it's not necessarily helping you a lot because they want to gain market share, gain uh, more demand rather than reduce right. their cost. The president with his tweet this morning on the innovation of Amazon, he made, the president's tree was wildly non-economic, I would say, uh, in, its, uh, in, in its view. Explain to people that agree with the president that Amazon has stolen jobs from towns, cities, in the Borders bookstore at the corner of Park Avenue and 57th Street. It has. It has reduced basically the amount of bookstores, and then Amazon has opened its own bookstore uh, somewhere in New York. So it is also opening its own bookstores because it's, it's realized— It's not that good, Jeff. I know Jeff listens. they gotta, they got to make a better bookstore. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> the, I have no, no view on it whatsoever, but they, they, they are. It's, it's creative destruction. If you, yeah. uh, if you live in New Jersey, you can see that you're living in X factories, whether it's uh, Lipton Tea, uh, whether it's uh, the coffee uh, producers of the time. And we change, we adapt, and this, they're a part of that process of adaptation. The question is whether it goes too slowly or too fast, and the short answer is it doesn't go very fast whatsoever. Mira, I would, I would editorialize here that, that we've innovated the coffee uh, some days it Bloomberg surveillance down to a thin soup. Oh, I'm very innovative when it when it comes to coffee, certainly. <laughs> but just a brief question uh, to you, Sebastian, on FX. Uh, we've got the euro a little weaker on a report that Mario Draghi actually won't deliver a fresh policy message at Jackson Hole. Why is Draghi not pushing back on the stronger euro? Because we're not in a crisis situation in the eurozone. Things are going pretty darn well. Now, if you look at it from an Italian point of view or... It used to be in the Spanish point of view or a Greek point of view, then uh, you might be a bit more concerned. But the uh, demand internally in, in uh, the Eurozone is, uh, is going pretty well. It's not a crisis situation. Therefore, they're not targeting the currency. They used to target the currency. They did it yeah. deliberately. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer the case. Do you agree with your colleague, Dominic Constant, of a larger real growth in America? I think it's a structural thing. I mean, in the sense that real interest rates are... Uh, not relatively high, but inflation mm -hmm. remains subdued. Uh, potential growth and the actual growth is, is decent enough. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons is there are structural reasons why the CPI is uh, going to stay uh, sticky and on the low side for a significant amount of signed. And one of it is because the labor market is a, is a global one. Sebastian Galli, thank you so much. Thank you uh, for, for being with us for a lengthy time today within all the news flow. He is with uh, Deutsche Bank. This is Joy. We're going to speak in our next section about all that's going on with our president, the emotions of this nation. But now we celebrate his book, and it will always be his book. Michael Barone joins us, joining us on our phone line. Michael, I've already ordered the 2,080 pages for myself and my colleague, David uh, Gura. I, I'm fascinated by the piecing together of your new Almanac of American Politics. What was the Trump effect on writing this edition of your must-read? Well, it, uh, 
obviously it means that you're writing something that uh, you you got things you're writing something that's rather different from what you expected to be writing about because um, I like most of the people did not think Donald Trump would be elected president. I mean, I tended to think he had toward the end of the campaign that he had about a one out of three chance of winning. That's similar to what uh, Nate Silver's five thirty eight website uh, calculated, um, and what the result teaches us is that uh, one out of three actually happens one out of three times. Yeah. <laughs> This was the uh, one out of the one out of three, and uh, and so forth. So it it reveals something. I think you know, in historical perspective, the number of votes that change, the percentage of the electorate that change, was actually not uh, huge. Uh, if you take a look at comparing, say, the nineteen seventy two election with seventy six, or the nineteen seventy six with nineteen eighty, right. 2012, right. 2016. You know, you, you, um, you piece this together, the Richard Cohn, James Barn, and of course the uh, legendary Charlie Cook. What is the vignette out of the 2080 pages? What is the one essay or article that really stuck out to Michael Barone? Well, the, the article that sort of struck out to me was one that I wrote and um, in which I, as I recall, I started off um, with the fact that um, Donald Trump was a person that most people had thought was not a political person before he stepped on that escalator on June 15th, two years ago. Um, Donald Trump was present at the um, ceremony uh, dedicating the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in November 1964. Um, that's, you know, a small crowd of dignitaries. Uh, people led by Mayor Wagner, by Governor Rockefeller, by the um, Robert Moses, the legendary um, builder of New York um, bridges and parks and so forth. Um, he was 18 years old. He was yeah. uh, a student at Fordham. Um, what was he doing in that crowd? And the answer, obviously, is that his father, who had many, many political connections, particularly with the Brooklyn Democratic Machine, had gotten him a ticket. And there he is watching the dedication of the largest bridge in the world and the greatest city in the world and the greatest country in the world. You know, you're getting the yeah. picture. He's partaking of this <clears throat> event. Well. And, uh, he, and, and he, notifies, he notices later that the name of the bridge designer wasn't mentioned. And he told interviewers, when I build something, they're going to mention my name. Interesting. Now, let's do this, Michael. Let's uh, come back, and uh, we want to talk to you. Nira Chayich and I want to really dive into your thoughts uh, as you write for the Washington Examiner about what we've seen since Charlottesville. We are thrilled to bring you this morning, Michael Barone, folks. I can't say enough about the acquisition. It's expensive. Price warning. Barone's got to, you know, pay for the Trump Tower cocktails. It's $80. It's the best $80 you will spend on the Almanac of American Politics, 2018. Nera Chayich in London, I'm Tom Keaton in New York, and we are honored to have with us Michael Barone. In 1972, he put out a small book that 
I guess most people ignored. You should see what it goes for on eBay right now. It's like a treasured. It's like out of Game of Thrones, one of those books in the Citadel. He's out with his American almanac of American politics. Look for that in the next few days. I've already bought my uh, copy. Michael Barone, of course, writing in the Washington Examiner. Michael, Republicans now and moderate Republicans have to figure out what to do with their president. With all of your district by district experience, for example, how will the Bucks County, Pennsylvania, Republican 8th District, how will that congressman respond? I mean, just to to give an example of one, Mr. Fitzpatrick down there, what do mainline Republicans do? Well, the... uh the 8th Congressional District, which is roughly coincident with Bucks County, Pennsylvania, yeah. Suburban County. What will the Republican representative do if he's in lower Bucks, down by Bristol, the Delaware River, the industrial area? Uh, he will have some good things to say about Donald Trump, and he will emphasize the positive things that he thinks Mr. Trump has done. Uh, when he gets into upper Bucks County, the kind of leafier area with a much higher percentage of college graduates and higher-income people, he will lament uh, Mr. Trump's uh, tendency to tweet um, off the top yeah. of his head and uh, some of the mistakes that uh, that President Trump has made are some of the things that uh, may not be mistakes yeah. from his point of view, but are unpopular among that college-educated group. Uh, that's a classic district that's divided between um, non-college graduate whites, lower bucks, who move toward Donald Trump as compared with 2012 and other recent elections, and between college grad uh, right. uh, voters who uh, who moved away from Donald Trump. And that's a kind of um, vignette that's the kind of vignette folks you can get in Barone's American Almanac of American Politics. Let me bring in my colleague Naira Chehich in London with Michael Barone. Naira? Thank you, Tom. Michael Barone, great to speak to you. So while we've been talking through all the media about CEOs abandoning the president, all morning I've been thinking to myself, what does Gary Cohn make of all this? And as if it read my mind, the New York Times headline, Gary Cohn is said to be deeply upset by the last few days. What will be more damaging to this administration in your view? More abandonment from CEOs of the businessman president or abandonment by his closest political aides? Uh, well, I think the latter would be more um, dangerous or uh, problematic for him. Uh, you know, we've had a number of accounts from what uh, conservatives call mainstream media, people leaving the Trump administration. Uh, some of those accounts have been accurate. Uh, others have not. So um, I'm old enough to remember lots of administrations where we were told somebody was leaving and they ended up not doing so. Uh, as for the CEOs of companies, um, I kind of sniff a certain amount of political correctness there, similar to what we saw from the CEO of, uh, of Google when he uh, fired and went after proclaiming that Google believes in free speech and open airing of discussion from its employees, then fired an employee who said something that, uh, that the CEO and uh, certain people within the corporation had said, uh, you know, some of the, it upset some of the employees. He mischaracterized what they said. Uh, I don't think as far as American voters are concerned that most of them think that CEOs uh, really uh, provide the kind of guidance they necessarily want. You can get 
a certain number of voters that think a lot of CEOs should be in jail. Um, they don't usually specify what offense they think mm. they should be in jail from there, rather. Uh, you know, you, you hear politicians of mm-hmm. both parties saying, mm. no bankers right. went to jail yeah. as a result of the 2008 yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Uh, well, so I don't think that's as damaging to Mr. Trump as the... Uh, as, as uh, major departures in his administration might be. Right. Well, you, you talked about political correctness. I mean, everybody is asking why the president has responded the way he has to what happened in Charlottesville. We had a great piece on the Bloomberg uh, by one of our columnists, Timothy L. O'Brien, who said it's not about politics. It's his long history of race baiting. Should we, in fact, be surprised by any of this? Uh, well... You know, there's always room to be surprised by what Donald Trump does. Uh, I, I think to characterize what he, what he said as race baiting, uh, is is somewhat unfair. Um, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Mr. Trump was a couple of days late in uh, saying negative things about this uh, pro-Nazi group that was uh, staging the initial uh, mm-hmm. meeting there. He's been attacked in the press conference for the press statements in the press conference yesterday for saying that there was uh, violence on both sides, that is, among the so-called uh, white supremacy groups or whatever you want to call them, and by the groups of, uh, they call themselves anti-fa, that they talk about yeah. anti-fascism, and they, and they proclaim that they have a right to uh, use physical violence against people who make statements they disagree with. That's Michael, I get the idea that there is an imbalance here, a polarity, and you're going to get violence on both sides. No one disagrees with that. But in the time that we've got left with you, what, with all of your encyclopedic knowledge of the Republican Party, what does the party of Lincoln do with this president? That's the money question. I mean, as I speak, MSNBC is showing a picture of a younger George Herbert Walker Bush when Michael Barone launched out your classic book. What does George Bush Sr.'s party do with Donald Trump? Uh, well, one of the things that George H.W. Bush did when he was president was uh, after uh, David Duke, the yeah. self-appointed Ku Klux Klan leader in Louisiana um, emerged as the one Republican running in a, in a, in a runoff in the Louisiana right. system for Governor Louisiana. George H.W. Bush came out against him and said people should vote for the Democrat. Do you need to see that? Does, does, but within your heritage and the important place that you are in conservative American politics, do yeah. you... Do you need to see statements by our former presidents to bring this present president to task? Or is that asking well, too much of them? Well, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I suppose former, pre- you know, former President Bush is, uh, is over 90 years old now, so I think uh, asking him to make public statements may be... Uh, a little much uh, for the, the more recent President Bush, and uh, has made a policy of saying very little uh, to condemn uh, President Obama during his eight years of presidency, uh, even though President Obama had some fairly harsh things from time to time to say about him. 
uh, and has employed the same thing for Mr. Trump, although he obviously was not a Trump supporter. So, you know, I think that a lot of Republicans have come in and said that uh, they don't, uh, you know, they condemn uh, this, uh, you know, Nazi race, white nationalism, racism, which so far as I can determine mm-hmm. is a view shared by a microscopic percentage of the American public. But you can always find some nuts somewhere that believe that yeah. food is made of green cheese. But um, it's a small group, but uh, when it's uh, pursuing violence and when one of its members uh, committed what looks to me to be like a murder, a horrible crime. Uh, condemnation is in order and has been forthcoming for many no. people. And I regret that uh, <clears throat> Mr. Trump didn't uh, start off with a solid well, condemnation, a specific condemnation of this group. And if you wanted to add that these left-wing anti-fas are committing violence across the nation in ways that are also repugnant, um, he might have made well, that point after Michael, the first one we got to leave it there Michael Barone, thank you so much congratulations on the 2018 edition, 2000 pages folks the almanac of American politics, this is Bloomberg This is my interview of the day on NAFTA. Uh, Brad DeLong has not only been a leader in our economics, someone that conservatives have to read is someone, I hate the word Brad progressive, so I'll go with liberal, but also someone with an acute understanding of our economic history. He is, of course, at Berkeley. Brad, wonderful to speak to you today. Is the NAFTA today that we're amending is it anything like the NAFTA of 1994 or 1995? Um, the NAFTA today is little like NAFTA of 1994-95 because of the 22 years that have happened since. Um, a huge amount of water has flowed under the bridge since then. NAFTA back in 1994 and 1995 was largely a bet for Mexico that if Mexico could get the United States to promise that it would not raise tariffs or quotas on Mexico, that Mexico could develop more rapidly, become richer, and so be a better neighbor for the United States. Did that promise pay off? Um, That promise kind of paid off about a third. Um, Some good things happened, but Mexico got a huge honking financial crisis out of it. And Mexican growth overall has been very disappointing over the past generation. What NAFTA has done is it's been a much bigger than expected boon for the United States. Um, Lots more um, cheap and relatively high-quality goods coming in from Mexico. And the ability of United States firms to significantly improve their competitive position with respect to competitors in Europe and Japan by creating an integrated integrated North American value chain. Can we get a dialogue from President Trump, from the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, that dovetails their political pressures into a successful amendment of NAFTA? Because they don't agree with the statement you just made, do they? Well, it's hard to know what they agree with. Um, the story coming from, I think, 
Jared Kushner or Jared Kushner's people on their direct line to the New York Times is that Wilbur Ross ran into Donald Trump's office with a map showing that Trump land was the part of the country that would be most hurt by NAFTA abrogation. And that's what led Trump to back off his initial kind of campaign claim that he was going to get rid of NAFTA very early and instead shift mm-hmm. to this, well, gee, we have to renegotiate it. Um, so it's very unclear yeah. what the Trump okay. administration yeah. thinks about this. Brad, Especially what... since if you, look, if you look at what they're asking for right now, um, one of the major things seems to be that they're asking that Mexico and Canada agree as part of the renegotiation of NAFTA, agree to the things that Mexico and Canada agreed for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which um, Trump ditched on his very first day. I, I look, Brad, at the age-old, and you're, you're truly one of our authorities on economic history. Uh-huh. One of the great things is to take whatever you defeated in the election, rename it, and put your brand on it. Are we going to do that well, with TPP? Everybody shot down TPP, and now that whoever's won, Clinton or Trump, they both were against it, uh-huh. they're going to essentially uh-huh. do TPP but not call it TPP. Is that where we're heading? Well, that's what seems to be the Trump administration's negotiating position, or at least the negotiating position of the Trump staff and the Trump cabinet members who are running this thing. It's not at all clear that's what the president wants to do. Um, The president seems to have this idea that each country's trade should be balanced with every other country's trade every year, and that if your country ever has a trade deficit with another country, that means you're a loser. We have seen, um, we've seen, so, yeah, we've seen Brad yeah. going back to Schumpeter and Thomas McCraw's outstanding Profit of Innovation, my book of the year, ages ago. Uh, Brad, we've seen creative destruction. The president today went after Amazon. Now that's in retail. I get it, but you are one of our. Authorities on the creative destruction of industry in America. Is there any grain of truth to what the president said that Jeff Bezos has failed cities, towns, and states across this nation? Um, Well, I'd say that the thing that's failed, the thing that's failed, the downtowns of kind of small city America. is not Amazon nearly so much as Walmart. Um, Amazon has gotten a lot of people, a lot of very good stuff, cheap, um, shipped through, um, you know, through information and then through shipping dissemination. Amazon is an updated version of what Sears, Roebuck, and Montgomery Ward did a century, a century and a half ago <clears throat> in terms of getting the goods of America's high productivity factory out to people who didn't live right mm-hmm. next door to a huge store. And so we had 50 years during yeah. which Sears and Montgomery Ward were dominant. But then with the coming of the automobile, you <clears> no longer had to wait for the post office to bring your kind of um, large refrigerator from Montgomery Ward. You could go drive. Right. It. And it shifted back to retail. Now it's shifting back again to distribution. Yeah. What's scary, um, what's which scary. is very normal. Um, what's not normal is that 
Trump is mad at Bezos because Bezos owns the Washington yeah. Post, and he doesn't think the Washington Post is being nice enough. To yeah, well, Brad, along um, with this, you shouldn't view this as economic policy. This is instead media policy. Yeah, let's come back with uh, Professor DeLong. Lots to talk about. I really want to address the labor economy in his important work on labor share uh, in uh, NAFTA as well. We got to get to that in our next uh, section. I should point out that Professor DeLong and Professor Davidovitz seem to agree about the Walmart effect versus the Amazon effect. That's something that uh, we have uh, as well. Folks, there are a certain number of essays a year which stop the economic profession. They can sometimes be in fancy magazines that only academics read. They can be out on the internet. They can be something as simple as a Bloomberg View essay. One of them on January 24th of this year was written by J. Bradford DeLong. Let me read the entire title off the Vox website. NAFTA and other trade deals have not gutted American manufacturing, period. It was hugely controversial at the time and led to what every good academic wants, which is massive follow-up in positive and negative review and critique. Brad DeLong of the University of California at Berkeley uh, is with us now. Brad, eight months on from your important essay, what has been the summed criticism? Are, are, are academics in agreement with you that NAFTA and other trade deals did not gut American manufacturing? Um, I think there's a distinction people like to draw between trade policy on the one hand um, trade effects on the second, and globalization on the third. Um, trade policy, I think almost everyone agrees, has had little effect um, in terms that if we hadn't done NAFTA, um, if we hadn't let China allowed China to join the World Trade Organization, that America today would look very much like it does. Um, that whatever problems America has um, are not at all due to making, quote, bad trade deals. And on the flip side, whatever advantages America has um, are not at all due to, quote, bad trade deals. Then you get into the question of the effects of international trade on the U.S. economy, given yeah. the other policy mistakes we're making. And there, there's a real debate about how, given our other policy mistakes, you know, given large deficits at the wrong time under Reagan and George yeah. W. Bush, right. um, given insufficient deficits at the right time when the economy was mm -hmm. deeply depressed, um, how much trade has been a net plus or net minus. And that debate is serious and ongoing. Yeah. And, and what's unresolved. the third one? Very quickly here. What's the third um, one? And the third one is globalization as a yeah. whole. Yeah. That because yeah. of globalization, we no longer have a lock right. on making the high value manufactured goods. One of the great and a lot of America's prosperity for fifty years was based on the fact that we had the old, that the only right. efficient factories in the world, and that meant we could right. buy lots of good stuff cheap from abroad. We no longer have that advantage. We have to compete. We no what? longer have a manufacturer, the monopoly on high, 
um, right. high value of manufacturing. Brad, and that's natural. That's, that wasn't an advantage you could sustain forever. What happened, and you have been good on this, Phil Verger and others have been very good on this, really across party politics. The people that lost their jobs, low wage textile manufacturing is one example. Textile they, and furniture manufacturing. Yeah, they were supposed to get help slash subsidy slash a life forward given these effects. Am I right that the Lockean individualistic society of America failed those people? And can we learn from that in these new negotiations? Well, um, I think counterfactually it wouldn't have failed those people, those people, unquote, had Newt Gingrich not become Speaker of the House in January 1995, you know, that is all the labor market stuff that Bob Reich as labor secretary was pushing and that was supposed to be kind of round two of the Clinton administration after the kind of round one of get economic growth going, round two of making sure the growth was equitable. Um, that second part collapsed when the, Republican, the Democratic congressional majority melted away. In the election of 1994, and was never right. um, has never been revived. Um, so I'm not sure if it's a failure of America as a system or the result of one bad election uh, that produced people not willing to follow through right. on the policy promises that Clinton had made and that George H. W. Bush had made before him. That said, virtually nobody was unhappy with NAFTA in the late 1990s. I remember that. You yeah. wander yeah. around America in the late 1990s, and the last thing people are worried about um, is NAFTA. Okay. People are excited about the Internet. People are seeing large real wage growth all over the economy for the first time ever. People are upset because California's housing prices are booming and it's right. expensive to move to Silicon Valley. But you kind of NAFTA killing the American economy was simply not a thing okay. um, from We're, 1995 on up right. to 2000. Professor, we've got to leave it there because of time. But thank you so much, and congratulations on the impact of your January essay on NAFTA. Brad DeLong is at the University of California of Berkeley. Really appreciate his time uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.